Martina Boxall writes about water issues and the environment for the Los Angeles Times, where she's worked since 1987. She and her colleague, Julie Cart, won the 2009 Pulitzer Prize for explanatory reporting for a five-part series on wildfire in the West. Please give a very warm welcome to Bettina Boxel. And welcome and um, congratulations on making it here through the traffic. So you, you must be interested in the topic. So to, to my right, I have an esteemed, I'm sorry, to my left, I have an esteemed panel. Uh, which I think are, are going to be presenting uh, different viewpoints. Um, first, um, Richard Atwater, who I wrote a story about um, a number of years ago. He was appointed executive director of the Southern California Water Committee in August of 2010. He has over 35 years of experience in water resources management and development in the West. As CEO and general manager of the Inland Empire Utilities Agency, which is in the Inland Empire. Uh, president of Bookman Edmonston Engineering and general manager of West Basin and Central Basin Municipal Water Districts. And he has a varied background. He worked for Reclamation and Metropolitan, which is the, um, the big gorilla of Southern California water. So he um, has, has a great deal of experience. In the middle, we have Chris Maven Austin. Chris Austin publishes the popular California water science and policy blog, Maven's Notebook. She was the creator and former publisher of Aquafornia, an impartial news aggregator website dedicated to California water that is now managed by the Water Education Foundation. And um, uh, Chris's work is, is something that I avail myself of. Um, she um, goes to uh, or, or listens um, uh, online to video recordings of uh, meetings, numbingly boring meetings <laughs> that most of us have no desire to go to, but are important in the labyrinthian bureaucracy of California water. And she, uh, she posts uh, um, almost transcripts of those meetings and quotes and, and does blog posting. So she really performs a very valuable service um, for water walks and, and, and journalism, mm -hmm. journalists in, in uh, California. Um, and um, to the left of Chris is Ronald Bailey, uh, is a science correspondent for Reason Magazine and Reason.com, where he writes a weekly science and technology column. He was also the author of the book Liberation Biology, The Moral and Scientific Case for the Biotech Revolution. His work has been featured in the Best American Science and Nature Writing, and he is the winner of two Southern California Journalism Awards. And Reason, of course, is a libertarian think tank, and I think Ron is going to be offering some interesting perspectives. I did a little bit more research on him and on his uh, website um, biography. Um, he was the editor of um, uh, a 2002 book called Global Warming and Other Eco-Myths, How the Environmental Movement Uses False Science to Scare Us to Death. And in 1993, he was the author of Eco-Scam, The False Prophets of Ecological Apocalypse. So, given that, Ron, my first question is for you. <laughs> Are we running out of water? No. That's a reusable resource. It's impossible to run out of water. It keeps it flows, it recycles itself naturally, so obviously the answer is no. The question is, are we in a water crisis? And the answer is very likely yes. For at first, because she did mention those other two books, I have to take a, a bit of no, I have to do a little bit of disclaimer here. The, uh, the first book, yeah, The Eco-Myth of Global Warming, basically was written by a climatologist who pointed out that the myth is that it was not catastrophic. 
he didn't say there wasn't global warming. So if you want to bother me about that later, we can talk. And EcoScan was written basically to look back over the last, uh, at that time, 30 years of failed ecological apocalypse predictions, which had not come true. And still, I'm, I'm writing a new book called The End of Doom, which reviews uh, 20 more years of, that, of those same predictions, and they still haven't come true. Uh, last time I talked to Paul Ehrlich was some time ago, but he basically said the uh, world will come to an end, famine will break out between uh, the year 2000 and 2010. Paul's still not right. Anyway, moving on, back to the topic. Back to water. Well, I, if you, yes, indeed, back to water. Uh, now, one of the problems, what I would like to do and make a strong suggestion is the crisis is a crisis of governance. That's been mentioned several times here. That basically what we have are gigantic bureaucracies siloed away, trying uh, desperately to, to manage water, but they're not able to do it subtly. The government process is itself. I used to be a government regulator, which is part of the reason I'm a libertarian. <laughs> and, and I understand how government bureaucracies fail. And no one ever looks at government failure. And what we have with water crises is largely government failure, not market failure. Markets have barely been tried. So what I would like to first suggest, and we can talk more subtly about this later, is the first thing we have to do to manage the water crisis to the extent that we have one is to eliminate all subsidies. All subsidies to water and all subsidies to farmers. There's absolutely no reason, and I do respect to the, the, to the farmers here in California, as far as I can tell, there's no reason that America should grow, an, grow another bowl of cotton at all. There's no reason to subsidize that crop. There's no reason to subsidize alfalfa. There's no reason to subsidize any crops at all. We have plenty of food. And the fact of the matter is, other places in the world are being damaged by our crop subsidies because we're not allowing poor farmers in the rest of the world to start moving up in their income development and start developing the infrastructure for managing their own water. Imagine this. In Niger, it takes six times more water to grow a ton of wheat than it does in the United States. That's crazy. They need an infrastructure and they need the income to do that. And if so long as we subsidize both water and crops in the United States, we're damaging them. But that's just a first step. So you, you would eliminate all water subsidies? All so water subsidies, to all infrastructure. Central Valley Project subsidies everything. should Absol be gone. They should, They'll be should. all be gone, and basically what the other thing we'd have to do, then is to, and this is a much more complicated problem, is to then allocate... Everybody's talking about privatization. There's no such thing as privatization unless there's also property rights. You have to start allocating property rights. To the ex and I'll make this as a claim. Any time you see an environmental problem, any time you see an environmental problem, it is occurring in an open access commons. If a river is polluted, it's because no one owns the river. If the air is polluted, it's because no one owns the air. If a forest is being chopped down, it's because no one owns the forest. If, if basically whatever you can think of, it's an open access problem. Nobody is owning it and protecting that property right. And to the extent that we have overuse of water, and we certainly do, is because we haven't allocated property rights properly. And again, we are, we're well down that path. It's 150 years of bad policy. And I can tell you what you need to do, but I can't tell you how to get there. That's well, government. Well, if I may intercede, number one, water is owned by the people of California. It's a public resource. Number two, how would you uh, reallocate it? The, the, if the government owns it, no one owns it. The bureaucracies own it. The people of California do not have much influence over them, with all due respect. Uh, the fact, the fact of the matter is, we've heard time and time again, the thicket of, litig of litigation, the regulations, the rules, and so forth. How many owners in California understand any part of that? 
The fact is, what you need are granular owners who actually own the water that goes through their land, and, and they're able to control it. But that would that goes through their land, that would be a total departure from water rights It would be a total departure. I agree. I agree. It would be um, a total departure. I, I, so I'm, I mean, not, that's, I'm that's not here to, re to, to offer popular solutions in that sense. I'm here to offer the, the best solutions. Right. No, and, and I'm just wondering, how, how would you do that? Because, of course, most of the water use in, in, in um, California, whether it's by agriculture or cities, is not by people who um, live next to the water. They're not riparian rights. We, we, we I, are wonderful in moving water around. That is what the state has been built on. Right. I understand. And what I would suggest is you start allocating it through a riparian right, that essentially there, there was a great case in upstate New York which kind of set off the way that we think about water pollution in the United States back in the 1890s. Uh, there was a farmer downstream uh, of, a, of a tannery. Uh, the tannery hired 500 people. And I can't remember the name of the case. And he sued the tannery because the water going past his farm was now polluted and killed his cows. And the tannery had the argument, well, you know, we have many more jobs here available than your cows, so we're not going to pay you for it. And the, at that time, the common law court said, actually, the farmer owns that water. You have to give it to him just as the way it was before. And they closed the factory. So what had happened at that point was that the, uh, the government and New York State decided, well, we actually think jobs are more important, and we don't care about water pollution. This is after all being the 1890s. And they took the water right away from the farmer and gave it to the citizens of New York. And then we had polluted water. Um, Chris, since uh, you, you spend your days um, reading documents and, and listening to discussions, do you agree with what Jason said at the uh, um, of Westlands Water District said earlier that um, we're not, there aren't water wars, there's 80% you know, consensus on, on what to do? Well, I think there is a lot of consensus, in the, and I think he is right in the areas where there's disagreement, that disagreement is strong. But I think that a lot of the collaborative processes that have been happening recently, the coalition for near-term Delta projects and the Delta dialogues is showing that there are some significant agreements um, on several issues, but um, there's also the, that which they're not agreeing on, um, they're probably kind of far apart. And very briefly, what are those issues in which they're really far apart? Um, I think, well, more flows in the delta for fish. Where, you know, where is that? Where is the extra water going to come from? We all know that the state water board is working on the flow requirements, and it's it's. I mean, I think everyone is pretty much expecting that they're going to require more flow to go through the delta, um, and everyone's now trying to figure out where that water is going to come from. Somebody's going to have to give up that water, and uh, since a lot of water is taken out that would normally throw, uh, flow through the delta is taken out before it even gets to the delta, um, the chances are it's very far-reaching. It just can't be solved from within the delta alone. It's going to take upstream communities from the delta as well as export communities. You know, everyone kind of taking, doing their part. But right now, everyone, no one wants it to be their water that they're giving up. They all want it to be somebody else's water. So in that sense, how much of a consensus is there? Isn't that really continuing <laughs> conflict? Yeah, but I think, though, that every, I think that they have come to decisions. People understand that we need a healthy ecosystem, that we're not going to be able to continue to take water if the ecosystem is crashing. 
So I think that there is agreement on that people want to see it improve, they just don't know how. And um. please don't take it out of my hide. Of, of course not. <laughs> and for, for those of you who don't, if I can just um, give you a brief uh, little lesson in the Delta. The Delta is part of the largest west, um, estuary on the West Coast. It is east of San Francisco Bay. Uh, it is the Delta of the two uh, longest rivers in California, the Sacramento and the San Joaquin. The Sacramento carries most of the water from the north, and the San Joaquin, oddly enough, flows kind of north northwest um, out of the um, southern Sierra. And it has become, over the past uh, 40 years, the hub of the two big water projects that send water all over California. And it is, um, for a variety of reasons, uh, uh, an a state of ecological collapse. And there are endangered species re um, restrictions that have reduced the deliveries to the San Joaquin Valley. That's what Jason Peltier was talking about. And also to Southern California. Uh, we in Southern California get about a third of our water from uh, the Delta. We, uh, the rest comes from the Colorado River and the rest um, locally. Which leads my question um, to, to Richard. Richard is head of the, um, when he was head of the um, Inland Empires Utility. The Inland Empires Utility is a very unique water utility in Southern California. It's on the uh, western edge of San Bernardino County. And unlike most water utilities, it got most of its supply locally. It overlay the, the Chino Basin, uh, and it uh, captured um, a, a runoff from the San Gabriel Mountains and used it to recharge the basin and um, also um, treated uh, uh, contaminated groundwater that had been contaminated by nitrate pollution, you know, dairy farming, and used it to recharge. Uh, and so about 70% 70, 70 of its water was local, which is highly, highly unusual. So given that, um, and, and I think this question was, was touched on earlier, um, can Southern California, or how independent can Southern California um, become in terms of its water resources? Wouldn't it be great if we could just say, you know, Delta, Northern California, keep your water. We don't want it. You know, Colorado River, keep your water. We don't want it. We can do our, our own. How, you know, how realistic is that? Well, the interesting thing is, is that we're less dependent on imported water today in 2013 than we were 20 or 30 years ago. If you go back to 1990, uh, I'm a, a water geek, so I, I always remember all the dry years, but 1988 to 1992 was a very dry period. We had droughts. Santa Barbara had 50% water rationing in 1989. Um, since that time, um, we used to be dependent on about 60% of the, the people from San Diego to Ventura County because we're all interconnected in Southern California. About 60% was imported water from the Colorado River, Northern California, and the city of LA's Eastern Sierra supplies. Today we're about at 40 to 45%. So we've dropped quite a bit. And as we talk about city of Los Angeles becoming more efficient today, they've added a million and a half people since 1990, and they're per capita consumption has dropped and they don't use any more water. So we have become much more efficient. Um, can you eliminate Colorado River supplies and waters from Northern California? No, that's physically impossible. Um, but just because the way the infrastructure and things were set up, um, the previous panels talked about it, it'd be horrendously expensive uh, just um, to, for example, build seawater desalinization, which is very controversial along the coast. Um, but if you were to do that, um, it'd take a lot of energy and physically pumping that from, say, like Huntington Beach or Manhattan Beach 
uh, to like Pasadena or to uh, Anaheim would be uh, very expensive in Southern California. But we are getting more efficient. On the example you talked about, I, I use an example. In Southern California, almost all the groundwater basins are regulated through court property right systems. Mm -hmm. And we have water markets of uh, cities and farmers in the Chino Basin or here in LA County, they lease their rights and sell their rights between parties. Um, but it's a managed system. Um, there's a water master, uh, both uh, uh, the San Gabriel and the Santa Ana River, the two largest rivers in Southern California, have their own adjudication and have a water master. So going back to your question about Chino Basin, we're really proud of what we did from um, 2000, 2010, we had shortages in 2007, 2008, 2009. What we did is we worked on an arrangement with the Metropolitan Water District. We banked surplus water um, from the Colorado River in Northern California, stored in the groundwater basin, and during those three years, we pumped more groundwater than we normally did, and we reduced by half the, the amount of water we, we used locally. The other thing I remind all of you about is on the Santa River, um, it uses more recycled wastewater, sewage, if you will, than anywhere else in North America. It's second behind uh, Israel as far as the amount of people using their sewage to drink. I always like to tell people in audiences like this, if you go to Disneyland, <laughs> about 75 to 80% of the water that comes out of the drinking fountain at Disneyland is from sewage from the cities upstream of Anaheim. It goes down the Santa Ana River, and of course, uh, Orange County Water District is world famous for what they built and started operating in 2007, the first phase, they're in construction, second phase, but it's the largest water recycling facility on the planet, and it's gotten awards from Stockholm, um, it's been on you know, international coverage, and it's, it's something that we in Southern California ought to be proud of, and we're doing more of that type of thing of using recycled water, um, not, as somebody said earlier, just for golf courses, all the oil refineries in LA County, we drink it. We've been drinking it. If you live in Downey or in Cerritos, you've been drinking it. It's been going down the San Gabriel River since 1964. So it, it's, it's widely used, and we'll continue to expand upon that. The governor, not to make a long-winded answer, but the governor just signed a law uh, about a week ago, uh, a noteworthy bill that really promotes more research to make um, using recycled water more common throughout the state. I mean, you talk about cost, but I mean, certainly the cost of importing water from uh, Northern California uh, is going to go up. I mean, with, with the, this plan to, um, to do some remedial work and change the, the conveyance system in the Delta is going to add to the, to the cost of water. Um, it, it takes the single greatest um, use of energy in the entire state of California is, is, is pumping the water that comes from Northern California down the California aqueduct over the Tehachapi Mountains into the Los Angeles Basin. And energy costs um, are, are going up. There's, um, of course, AB uh, 32, uh, a state law that requires a greater use of renewable energy, is, is forcing um, the state water project, which does the importing uh, from Northern California, to uh, uh, switch to more alternative sources, which are often you know, more expensive. So if, if, you, if you look at, the, at the, um, the buffet of alternative water sources and you, you factor factor in the rising energy costs, you factor in the costs of, of fixing the delta, um, and you compare it with stormwater capture, with water recycling, um, and um, you know, cleaning up local groundwater, 
uh, is is imported water from Northern California really in you know 10, 15 years going to be that much cheaper than those al other alternatives? Um, in, in my opinion, yes. One of the things they've done in the design of the tunnels, they're going to be gravity-fed, so that won't take any energy. Um, and it's kind of backbone infrastructure. So what we're really doing, uh, one of the earlier panels people talked about, we're really doing maintenance. It's, the facility has been around since the 1960s. And so what we're really trying to do is address both climate change, sea level rise in the delta, and, and the earthquake vulnerabilities. And this is really a facility um, that um, pencils out. Uh, as a comparison, the city of San Francisco and the two million people who live on the peninsula uh, recently spent four and a half billion dollars to build a tunnel, similar type tunnel, under San Francisco Bay for those uh, two million people. And that was an order of magnitude more expensive per person than the tunnels in the Delta would be for the people who use it from San Jose to San Diego. Ron, I mean, within the system that we have now, yes. the flawed, imperfect system that we have now. Are water agencies um, doing enough to you know, recognize that we're in a crisis and th that there are limits and to reallocate water use in a sort of indirect way? I'll be honest with you, I, honest, I don't know. Uh, are they doing enough? What would count as, as, as enough that, I, that is not a, a question which I could competently answer, so I won't do that. Chris? Uh, but <laughs> could I ask a question, though, about with regard to the, the, the cost of water? The, I'm, I am, I'm puzzled about one thing. Uh, why is desalination such a bad idea? I've just been reading some interesting stuff from coming out of Lockheed Martin, that they have a new graphene filter which uses 100 times less energy and they think they can backfit it into reverse osmosis plants that would take care of a lot of the energy cost problems. If, if true. And if that, it worked, right. Yeah, if it worked. And that's an important point. There's a lot of work, but fundamentally, and it goes back to um, Bettina's earlier question to me, the amount of energy it takes to uh, desalt or make fresh water out of the Pacific Ocean actually takes more energy than it takes to pump the water right. from Northern California to Southern California. We do do a, a fair amount of uh, reverse osmosis desalting in Southern California, but it's mostly cleaning up brackish groundwater that's polluted. But seawater desal, if you look at the facility that's being built in San Diego, in Carlsbad, um, it's a billion dollar facility, and it represents a, uh, about a 1% solution for the overall water supply for 20 million people. It's a very expensive, and the operating costs, and, and with AB32 and everything else, it, it will, it's about five times more expensive than getting water from the Delta today. So it's, it's a very expensive option. Um, viable, I mean, in the sense the technology works, it's just, relatively speaking, it, it's very expensive. Can I add something? One thing that's never talked about, at least I don't hear it when we talk about desalination in Southern California, yes, there's the energy impacts, and yes, there's the environmental impacts. The other thing that isn't talked about is our inf infrastructure is built exactly backwards. Uh, we can't take in a large volume yeah. of water at the coast and shove it up these pipes. They all come in big from the direction they're coming to, and they get smaller and smaller and smaller as they get to the coast. I heard Bill Hazenkamp describe it as trying to get an infusion through your little toe. It's just not going to work. Yeah. So if you think the tunnels are expensive, reversing all the infrastructure throughout Southern California, I think is going to be 
incredibly more expensive and more controversial. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I'll leave this open to, to any of you. Um, agriculture uses the, the, the vast amount of water that is used by humans in the state. It's, it's something like, well, here, I'll give you some figures if I can find them. Let me give me a second here. Okay, this is from a, a 2005 uh, state report. Californians collectively use about 43 million acre feet, and an acre foot um, is the amount of water that supplies uh, about two households in Southern California. It's also the amount of water that covers an acre by one foot. So, altogether, 43 million acre feet. <clears throat> um, uh, of this total, 34 million acre-feet is used by agriculture and about 9 million acre-feet by urban um, entities. So given that, um, uh, and, and, and also about um, four years ago, um, the state set a goal that um, urban use would have to be reduced by about 20% on a per capita basis by 2020. But no such thing has ever been adopted for agriculture, and about the most that the legislature got through at that time was to um, direct agriculture to start irrigators, irrigation districts, to start measuring the amount of water that their individual customers used. And uh, I think um, you know that that response by the agriculture community is is is, is rather slow. So, given the fact that most in human use of water in California is by agriculture, and that the focus on conservation in terms of regulations and, and mandates uh, is, is always on urban. Uh, how can, um, you know, uh, the state regulators, uh, re you know, reduce the amount of agricultural water use? Should they be doing it? You know, what is the best way to do it? Uh, now I can go back to your earlier question with regard to how well our agencies handling the water. You've just pointed out they're not doing very well here at all, just by your example. They're not handling it well, and perhaps one of the better ways, that, and I agree with you, that focusing on urban use is, is, is not the way to go. It's not the largest use. And so if you did have an effective water market and so forth, we would probably have fewer farmers. Now, people say, well, I don't want fewer farmers. Well, that's a political decision. Why don't we allow people to vote with the way they want to vote with their dollars with regard to how they want to use their dollars to, to purchase water or not? The municipalities can do that and so forth. Why allocate it this top-down way and have some sectors protected, farmers in this case, where urban people have to bear greater costs? Why should it be organized politically that way when you could have an actual effective market try to solve these problems. Well, it's, but if you had a market, you would still, um, the cost would still be falling on the urban customers because they would be buying it from the farmers. If you were to get rid of the subsidies to the farmers in the first place, first of all, we're producing a lot of water from, uh, as I understand it, the capital costs for a lot of this production of water and giving to the farmers. The farmers are not covering any of that capital cost or not very much of it. They're Actually, they, they're just not covering the interest in the Central Valley Project, which is the federal project. That well, that's the capital cost. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a good deal of the capital yeah. cost, but it's not our. Well, but then that's a subsidy to them. Mm -hmm. So to make them pay that and then see how the water gets allocated to urbans versus farmer at that point as well. I mean, if you have everybody exposed to the actual cost of the production of water, you would have a much more rational system of allocating it. Uh, Rich? Well, yeah, the... the, 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 the I guess subsidies and the financing of the of water infrastructure in California has a long history over yeah. a century. Um, 
And the only thing I would add is, for the audience, we just ought to clarify, it's the United States Congress who's always supported, um, in the Great Depression, um, the state of California and the voters approved building the state uh, water project at that time. It became the federal Central Valley project, as Bettina pointed out. They built uh, Shasta up in Northern California and all that. But during those times, uh, the, the federal laws were that farmers could get the water uh, uh, interest-free, but the water users, the cities, the electricity that was generated, all that paid back for the capital of that project. A different story is um, Jerry Brown's dad, of course, when he was governor in 1960, the State Water Project, the farmers in Kern County and other farmers on the State Water Project, um, which is uh, from the Feather River, Lake Orville, and, and for places like San Jose and San Diego and LA, um, there are no subsidies to farmers. So, and then a lot of farmers um, throughout the state have their own water rights, and so they don't get subsidies. So when we get into this debate about subsidies and who pays for it, I, I probably ought to stop there because it'll take me another half hour to explain all the history and all that sort of thing. Um, Hoover Dam during the Great Depression, you all paid for it. We paid for all of it, except for the flood control benefits and the recreation. Um, the federal government didn't subsidize it $1. We paid it off. So, um, it's an interesting story about infrastructure. There's always a compelling argument when you think that um, these facilities are going to last for a couple centuries. Um, you know, there are investments for the future. Um, the State Water Project was built in the 1960s. Here it is, 2013. The solutions we're talking about in the Delta for the next 100 years. So it's, a, it's something for a long time. Well, speaking of the Delta and subsidies, um, uh, the, the concept of pain, and I assume that in an earlier, I, didn't, I missed the first panel, so I assume you know what we're talking about. We're talking about the tunnel and, and the Delta. Yes, no? Yes. 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 No, yes. okay. All right, so... I I explained the delta, and um, the way uh, uh, so water comes in uh, principally from the Sacramento River, some from the San Joaquin River, uh, and then um, there there are two enormous pumping plants in the South Delta, and they fill the canals that go that supply water to San Joaquin uh, agriculture to the South and Southern California, and those uh, that pumping from the South Delta has uh, taken an ecological toll um, for a variety of reasons that I won't go into in detail. But there, um, uh, and, and that's uh, the major reason, um, uh, the impact of those exports is the major reason for the reduction in deliveries that Jason was complaining about and that have reduced de- deliveries to urban Southern California. There is a proposal now that has been like seven years in, in, in the making uh, that's that's you know uh, getting toward a, a more formal stage, that would change uh, or add a new diversion point at the Sacramento River in the, in the northern part of the delta. Build two 30-mile-long tunnels, enormous tunnels, um, that t- would take water. It's it's a it's a subterranean, smaller version of the peripheral canal, which some of you may be familiar with. From 1982, a proposal um, that was was killed by voters. Um, but it's a, it's a it's a different way of getting water through the delta to try to diminish the ecological impact, the harm that is done by the big pumping plants in, in the South Delta. It's very much opposed by people in the delta because, of course, it would be very disruptive. You're going to have this enormous infrastructure built in your um, back. Backyard, and it's also opposed by um, by some, not all, and environmentalists. It would cost altogether if you include um, uh, 
operations and maintenance and capital costs. Uh, and it also, by the way, includes restoration of delta habitat to try to make the fish happy so the endangered species restrictions um, get lessened and you can keep on exporting water. It would cost $25 billion uh, over the life of the project. And the concept is that the water users, um, i.e. Um, San Joaquin Valley Agriculture and Urban Southern California, will pay the capital costs of, of and the operations and maintenance of, of building um, uh, the tunnels, which is about, you know, between 15 and 19 billion, billion dollars. This is all going to add, you know, to, to our water costs. Well, it's becoming, you know, becoming apparent that agriculture is going to have a tough time, um, you know, carrying its full share uh, of, of the tunnel costs um, because there's probably not going to be enough water exported because of, of fishery concerns. And so there are hints that, um, once again, urban Southern California is going to have to subsidize, you know, the, the ratepayers, the urban ratepayers, if the tunnels are going to get built, are going to have to pay more than their share, um, basically subsidizing San Joaquin agriculture. And, and very briefly, with the State Water Project, you know, it, it was, you know, sort of, a, again, a beneficiary pays, but the Kern County um, agriculture users have actually gotten subsidized water because they get enormous, they're the biggest users of surplus water that is much, much cheaper than regular deliveries. So I think if one looks closely, just virtually all of California agriculture has enjoyed some kind of water subsidy, um, you know, over the years, whether it's, it's um, uh, taking water from, you know, um, agencies that, that have riparian rights, senior rights, um, and taking water for free from, from the rivers, groundwater pumping, um, you know, that, that is not regulated in, in, in California. So <coughs> that, you know, brings me back to whether or not um, we can really make, you know, how do we make agriculture or get agriculture to use us water? And is it realistic? to try to adopt the kind of system that, that Ron was suggesting where, where agriculture really pays its full share of, of, of uh, the full cost of the water it uses. Is that ever going to happen? Well, I'll end. let me just talk about the agricultural conservation issue for a moment. It's not as straightforward, I think, as people would like to think. You just can't go out to a plot of land and say, okay, I'm going to plant this crop there. If it's not the right soil, if the conditions are right, it isn't going to work. Um, you know, the, where they grow the rice up in northern Sacramento Valley, that's, those are rice paddies. You can't go say, okay, no rice there, grow, you know, something else there that's only suitable for certain types of crops. And the way that it works on, in a lot of these farming communities is that water is used from one farm, tailwater may go to the next, there's groundwater recharge. It's just not so, it's just not as cut and dry. And even when you get to the urban water conservation, the 20% the 20, 20 by 20% 20 by 2020 was controversial in that some communities said, hey, we're already using our water efficiently, and now you want us to use 20% more, you know, we don't want that. Or 20% less, excuse me, you know, yeah. and, and that, that's not fair. And there was a, there a lot of, you know, a lot of argument about that. Um, so it's, you know, things are so just... So what do we do? 
I, I don't know. I'll tell you what, I go up to Sacramento, I have the best showers in Sacramento. They're <laughs> huge. I mean, I, my, I had a friend move from here up to Sacramento, and I drove up there with my kids, and the guy was power washing his driveway. It's like, oh my God, we're not in Kansas anymore. You know, it's like, and, and she says, oh, come in here and take a bath. My bathtub's like a <laughs> yeah. pool. She wasn't kidding. They, uh, you know, it's, it was amazing. <laughs> we, and, we probably ought to explain to everybody. Sacramento, long controversy, they, they didn't have water meters for the longest time. Their per capita consumption, you can buy, for $20 a month, you can use all the water you ever wanted or could use. And it's, they do. And they do. <laughs> it's just a flat charge. And so that's, that's the example that she's highlighting. The only other thing to point out is, 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 is when we say it's San Joaquin Valley and Southern California, it's probably a little bit misleading. Um, the water users in San Francisco Bay Area are more dependent on Delta water and upstream of the Delta than we are. And so people in Silicon Valley, if we have a big earthquake, they're out of water in a week. We have big reservoirs. We'll be out of water in six months to a year if it takes two or three years to fix after the Delta collapse. But Silicon Valley, God forbid, would be out of water in literally days. And by the way, sil- the manufacture of silicon chips takes a lot of water. It does. It's quite, it's quite water intensive. It really is. Yeah. Ron. I, I'm, again, this, this uh, centralized kind of description you have here, 20% by 2020. Mm-hmm. That's a top-down centralized thing. I don't blame these towns being worried about it. Like, well, we've already been conserving. Why do we have to do more? That's the kind of result you get with that kind of agency rules, and that, that's obviously not the right way to go. And I do have a question about the rice, and I don't know about rice mm-hmm. here in California, but I know that rice in Arkansas and the East Coast and so forth are all subsidized crops. Is at a price crop subsidy. You, is that, is that I'm, a, I'm sure it's as subsidized as any other. So form of you subsidize the water and you subsidize the crop. That's really smart. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's sushi rice. <laughs> very, very sought after sushi rice. <laughs> we're, we're not from the Sacramento Valley. <laughs> Uh, it, actually, the Sacramento Valley rice is some of the best high-quality rice, and no, that's why she calls it sushi rice. Well, no, it is. It is the it, rice that's used for sushi. Yeah, and, and, you, and it's sought after. It's, it's not sushi. And, and we would it's be, not Arkansas and if we rice. Didn't subsidize it. We wouldn't have it. We would have no sh- sushi uh, rice if we didn't subsidize it. <laughs> that, that's a federal farm bill issue. I, <laughs> uh, it's, it's not California water <laughs> issue, but it's uh, certainly. Uh, above our pay grade to resolve that one. <laughs> um, I, I, uh, this is for any, of, uh, any and all of you. Uh, from a water perspective now, I'm not talking about any other, what do you think California is going to look like 100 years from now? Well, the thing I would say is, is in 2009, when we talked about this legislation that required the 20% per capita reduction in urban areas, and did require farmers to, to do water management plans and become more efficient, and they are, as, as Jason talked about. I will tell you that if you look at the last 30 years of trends, we will become more efficient. Los Angeles, San Diego. Um, the way I like to characterize it is uh, we in Los Angeles and San Diego and Southern California have done a really good job the last 20 years, but then if you compare us to places like Sydney, Australia, or other similar climates, um, their per capita consumption is significantly less. And so there is an opportunity to do more. And I think um, one of the areas is, that's talked about a lot in Los Angeles, for example, of course, is unfortunately the LA River. We, we put concrete down it after the great floods in 1934 and 38. It was one of the largest public works projects in the United States during that period. 
But you compare that to other parts of Southern California where we capture a lot more stormwater, like in the San Gabriel River, San Gabriel Valley, or over in, in Orange County, and Riverside, and San Bernardino County, uh, San Ana River, we are going to make efforts. And some of the things that show the indication of that is the Metropolitan Water District. Working with the city of Los Angeles and all of the big cities in Southern California, we offer incentives now for homeowners from Ventura County to San Diego to take out their thirsty lawns and put in uh, Southern California, Mediterranean, we call them California-friendly landscapes. I've done it at my house. I've reduced my water use by 50%. They also, in September, are offering re rebates so that you can put rain barrels at your house. And that's throughout Southern California. You do that when it rains like it did last Wednesday. Uh, you don't need to irrigate your plants for a couple of weeks. That, that will reduce your water use quite dramatically. Um, indoor water use, every new appliance is um, very efficient when it comes to water and typically very efficient as far as energy use. If you think about that 50 years from now, I think our per capita consumption can continue to go down and probably um, be half of what it is today. I think there's a lot of, uh, lot of space in, in the outdoor landscaping. That's really where I think we're going to yeah. make the, the strides. And I really think that where we should start is, I, I think that if you have a piece of lawn in your backyard and you use it, then you should have it if you're willing to pay to water it. I mean, I have kids, I have a dog, we have a lawn in the back and we use it. I have a neighbor, though, that lives down the street and he has a gorgeous front yawn. I mean, it's like this, this big. And he waters it three times a day, 10 minutes, it's on, three times a day, every day, rain, shine, or whatever. Um, I have never seen this man. He comes home, he opens up his garage door, he pulls his car in, he shuts it, and, and you never see him. He never walks on it. I mean, that's the kind of grass that doesn't need to be there. The grass that they put around these entrances to housing developments that are alongside streets that are so busy, you would never go out and sit on them or take your kids out to them. I mean, that grass should not be there. We shouldn't have it in the middle of medians. There are plenty of places where grass is where it doesn't need to be. I think if you're going to if you, but if you use it, you should have it, and you shouldn't feel guilty about it. But how many of us really use our front lawns? Most of us don't anymore. So that's where I really think the, the next big you know, chance to really cut down on our water use is. Uh, I think the biggest change in California in the next 100 years uh, with regard to water use is, is that there's going to be a lot less agriculture, period. And part of the reason I can say that is, is that uh, some researchers at, at Rockefeller University have argued that we've already achieved globally peak farmland, that there's not going to be f further land uh, developed for farming around the world. There may be various patches, but the trend will be downward for the rest of the century. And the United States will be part of that trend as well, because there'll simply be, the, what we have are much more high yielding crops all the time. The, the ways that, that uh, plant breeders are coming along, they're making much uh, better improvements uh, in, in raising crops and productivity, so we're using less land to grow more food. And that's simply going to happen to California. And there's going to be a lot more land returning to nature in California over the, over the next 100 years than, than you can even imagine at this point. Um, in, in terms of the outdoor water use, uh, of course, one of the best ways to get the attention, and we all know, we all drive around Los Angeles and we still see an you know, incredible you know, number of, of, of green lawns that, that aren't being used. Uh, and yes, there's more drought tolerant, but the vast majority of homes probably have lawns. So uh, 
the best way of getting uh, a user's attention, a domestic user's attention, is of course price. But agencies are very loath to do that because the public is used to not paying very much w for water. So, um, in, you know, I mean, Metropolitan, yes, they have this. Um, they or DWP rather has this turf rebate. I took I took advantage of it. I got rid of all of my lawn uh, and and got a check in my mail to pay a fraction of the landscaping relandscaping <laughs> cost. Um, That's true. <laughs> um, but uh, so shouldn't shouldn't agencies um, be uh, escalating their water costs um, beyond what they're doing now? And isn't that the real way to get customers to change their habits? Uh, instead of using, you know, having their gardeners hose down, the, you know, my next door neighbor every week, that his gar the gardener's there. Pssst, you know, I just want to say broom, broom. Do you ever hear of a broom? <laughs> no, <Yeah>. no. <laughs> well, uh, the answer is yes. Uh, a, a lot of um, cities and water districts in Southern California have, uh, just like when you get your electric bill from Southern Cal Edison or. or Department of Water and Power to get water. If you, if you live in the city of Los Angeles, of course, you get the trash, the water, the sewer, and the electric bill on one bill. But what my simple point would be they have what we call um, tiered rates. The more you use, the more you pay. And they also, based on your size of your lot and all that, they give you a water budget. So they figure out how much water you ought to be using. And, and, and in some cases, you'll pay upwards of eight to 10 times more if you're using a lot more than, than as a a water-efficient kind of allocation. So going back to Chris's point, people can do that. If you want to spend a lot of money to use water, we're not saying you can't do it in the water industry, um, but you're going to pay a very high price for that. And that's very common. City of Pasadena, Glendale, um, I haven't looked at the DWP rates recently, but there's a lot of um, utility cities throughout Southern California, City of San Diego is doing that right now, that w have a, a very expensive rate if you, you want to use a lot of water. So it, it rewards you so that if you don't use a lot of water, you save a lot. I grew up in Reno, and Reno's an interesting place, Reno, Nevada. The water source runs right through town, and uh, and they really, they've had water restrictions in Reno since I left 20 years ago. You can only water your, your lawn, uh, depending on your odd or even house number, um, all kinds of restrictions. And their water bills are high. And my parents were on flat rate. And my mom was saying, oh, they're going to put us on a meter. And when they put us on a meter, then we're going to do something. You drive around the town, and there is so much more drought-tolerant landscaping and, you know, that, that they're using there because their water bills are high and their water flows right through town. Ours gets flung up over the Tehachapis and my water bill is the smallest bill in my house and not because we worked that hard to mm. make it so, it just is. I think we're going to open uh, up to all way, of the you answer now. By the way, the answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we know what Ron thinks. <laughs> Hi, I'm Mary Ann Cook. I live in Silver Lake. Um, one of the things that has had happened at the, the last drought the LADWP requested all the citizens of Los Angeles to please not use so much water. And immediately their uh, income dropped precipitously. So how is the, how are the utilities going to handle better um, uh, conservation, less use of water, and still maintain the uh, money that they need to have in order to rebuild the infrastructure, which is, uh, along with Mulholland's uh, plan, 100 years old. 
whether you're an electric utility or water utility, we want to be more energy efficient and we want to encourage all customers to use less water. You can design the rates so that it's revenue neutral. Um, the reality is, is the water that you're buying you're, in your water bill, you're really not, the, 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 the percentage you're paying for the water itself is really small. You're paying for the, the pipes and the treatment plants and the reservoirs and all that. And just like in the electricity business, um, there it's slightly different. The, the, you know, you got to get the, whether the fuel operated, but in most cases you're paying for the wires and, and the big facilities. So the answer is, is, is that LA Department of Water and Power, like a lot of other utilities, needs to tweak their water rates so that when people use less, um, that they um, financially are kept whole so they have enough money to repair, as somebody said earlier, you know, on Laurel Canyon, you know, they got to replace a lot of 75 year old water mains. They, they do need to do that, and that needs to be part of their rate structure so they can afford to do that, because those things are, as you, oh, people who live in Los Angeles know, they unfortunately break every once in a while, and it's a big disaster. Hi, uh, Michael Feinstein, Sam Maka. I'm a spokesperson for the Green Party, and a question for our libertarian friend. Uh, we tend to enjoy what you say about eliminating subsidies, but are horrified by your privatization. But on the um, <laughs> eliminating of the, the subsidies, earlier I'd asked a question about the frustration that we don't hear about eating too high in the food chain and how much water it uses. John Robbins, in his Diet for a New America book in 1989, calculated that if the subsidies for the water that goes into the crops, that goes into the animals, that goes into the human mouths, were eliminated, hamburger would be $35 a pound. Are you comfortable with that sort of uh, effect of the subsidy prices that you, you advocate? I am absolutely uh, comfortable with that. People should pay for what it is that they use. And, and part of what you want to do is to pay the cost of the damage that you do to the environment. And therefore, that has to be rolled into it. And the way that we've subsidized the system is we're damaging the environment. Again, a lot of the particular things that you dislike about the way water is being handled that was not done by the private market. That was done by government fiat. If you don't like the water system you've got, your government gave it to you. If you do like it, it's because it's cheap water, but you don't like the effects because you don't want to pay for those effects. And that's something you always have to keep in mind. But one of the things this panel was supposed to be looking at, as I understood it, was also technological solutions to problems. And there's some far-reaching ones with regard to meat, for example. Uh, I, I will predict to you that a good proportion of the meat that people will be eating in 20, 30 years from now is going to be grown in a laboratory. And, and already the analysis has come out that that uses only 1% of the water that it takes to make a steak now. That would be a huge revolution in the way we start eating protein and those kinds of things. And so people are thinking too narrowly about, well, what about this little bit or that little bit? The fact is, progress is not going to stop. People are going to keep innovating around these problems. And what you really want to do is to encourage that innovation by exposing yourselves and entrepreneurs to the actual cost of what's going on. To the extent that you isolate them from those costs, they will not bring forth these new products or solve these problems. Instead, you will have bureaucrats in Sacramento and in Washington, D.C., going their sweet, lovely time about it, and not really taking a long time to solve these problems. Thank you so much, um, panelists, and thank you again to all of you for joining us.